Epicor is the essential partner to the world's most essential businesses, offering ERP solutions built for growth and operational success. Explore the industry productivity solutions we curate for the automotive, building supply, distribution, manufacturing, and retail industries by visiting epicor.com slash essential. That's epicor.com slash essential. The entrepreneurial spirit is resilient, and U.S. Bank is here to make sure that no matter what unknown pops up, business owners know that we have their back. Because problem solvers are the ones that keep us all moving forward by finding ways to close gaps, even when distances are being kept everywhere. So whatever you need to adapt and evolve your business, U.S. Bank is here to support you. U.S. Bank. We'll get there together. Equal housing lender member FDIC. Welcome to the Boost Podcast with Kelly Leonard. The podcast providing you with immediate access to tools, tips, and tactics to boost your business success, build your brand, optimize relationships, obtain more leads, secure thought leadership space, and tap into new markets. It's the Boost Podcast. And now, here's Kelly Leonard. Hello and welcome back to the Boost Podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Leonard. Today's episode features Shane Lloyd. Shane is a consultant with Cook Ross, a Washington, D.C.-based diversity and inclusion consulting firm. Shane is also board president of a national nonprofit called Class Action that promotes conversations on socioeconomic class status and class dynamic in the United States. You'll notice a bit of a pivot from our traditional conversation. So grab a pen and let's listen in. Hey, Shane, welcome to the Boost Podcast. Thank you, Kelly. Glad to be here. Awesome. Awesome. You know, I just, it's interesting. You come across people in your life from your life from time to time and you're just like, oh my gosh, I would love to just spend some time with this people. And you're actually one of those people who I've met more recently, who I'm just so super intrigued and just, just, I'm, I'm just excited to have you in my world. The feeling is absolutely mutual. (laughs) So Shane, I know that you have a great passion and love and background um, around socioeconomic class dynamics and what that means to our lives and to organizations. Mm-hmm. And, and I know with everything that's going on right now with COVID-19, I would love to just for you to share more with our listeners about just sort of who Shane Lloyd is, what makes you tick, and particularly what makes you tick or in and around this space of socioeconomic class dynamics. Sure. So my background is I grew up in uh, Long Island, New York, a predominantly white suburb. My parents are from the Caribbean and they always wanted to live the quote unquote American dream. So they came from the Caribbean, started a life in the United States, wanted to provide a life for my twin sister and I. And my father grew up in poverty in the Caribbean and my mother was more middle class. And then I've had a middle class upbringing, college education, master's degree from an elite institution. So I've lived the life where I've sort of moved through different class experiences. And now I'm working as a consultant at a diversity inclusion firm in the broader realm of management consulting, 
which as a professional industry has a certain level of prestige that's different than, say, for example, my mother who was a car saleswoman for a time and my dad who was the cabin cleaner for United Airlines. So part of why I think socioeconomic class status is such a rich and generative frame of reference at times, especially around diversity and inclusion, is because one, class is a sort of meaningful aspect of one's sort of identity over the course of their lives. Some of us have the opportunity to move between classes and the way the United States is built is as a classless society where anybody who works hard has the opportunity to make it. And unfortunately, what statistics say is that about only about 25% of people will have class mobility. So very many, many of us will be born into a class that we'll stay in over the course of our lives. So I think that's an important conversation to have. And then if we layer onto that COVID, COVID is made all the more um, deleterious and just dangerous rather, because there are all sorts of inequities across sort of wealth, access to healthcare and the like that are becoming even more apparent for those who may not have been looking for it because of how we're thinking about how governments are responding at a federal or local or state level and what resources people have available to them if they can no longer get a paycheck. Yeah, and that's, you know, it's interesting as you talk about these different things and class dynamics and class mobility and all that good stuff. One of the things that I, um, and you know, I, I say this jokingly and I'm sure my grandmother used to say this jokingly as well, but there's some truth to it. She used to say, the best thing that you can do for the poor is to not be one of them. Mm -hmm. and, so, and so when you think about what's going on right now, um, like, what do you, in your, in your mind and in light of COVID, how do you see um, socioeconomic class dynamics, um, class mobility, how do you see it practically playing out with what we're seeing right now around COVID? Sure. So I think the clearest example I think of that comes to mind is with limited amounts of tests, what we're seeing when celebrities or ambassadors or dignitaries are saying, oh, I don't have any symptoms for COVID, but I'm concerned. So I've now gotten a test and I'm positive, but I don't have these things. Everyone should take it seriously. So that oftentimes, and Cardi B said this actually, this oftentimes brings confusion because with the limited amount of tests and we the need to test people, particularly from vulnerable populations, your everyday average Joe is not gonna have the same kind of access as people of means. So if we understand that this is a limited resource that needs to be prioritized, how is it that people of means are able to get access before other people are? That's one sort of area in which sort of socioeconomic status comes about. The other dimension is just thinking about how do we interpret even what services are supposed to be rendered at the state level versus the federal government. Is the federal government sort of delegating all of this to small businesses and corporations to figure out how people make their ends meet? Or is it that the federal government is supposed to provide a safety net for people and corporations? How, how do we understand that? And then also thinking about it from the standpoint of what does it mean for us to have, this is a very unusual in circumstance, a global pandemic. So that's obviously rare and a once in a lifetime situation. But what does it mean that if the economy is brought to the standstill, that there are so many people who are now thrust into financial insecurity? Mm, yeah, which, which is interesting because I think um, it highlights the vulnerability that we all feel, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think it also um, 
you know, for as much as we don't want to talk about the economic impact of this, there is a huge economic impact. Um, and I think what we're seeing is um, it's highlighting the obvious around the disparity between socioeconomic classes. Mm -hmm. Without a doubt. So what would you so what would you say? How do we like what how do we move beyond this? Like in your impression, mm -hmm. what are some outside of just highlighting the fact that this exists? My question is, OK, so what? How do we solve this challenge or is it oh. solvable? I actually do think it's quite solvable. So one of the organizations I work with is called Class Action, and I'm actually the board president. And it's a national nonprofit focused on lifting up the voices of people from low-income backgrounds and then generating um, rich engagement and dialogue around varying class experiences that we have, but then also understanding class not just around sort of socioeconomic status, but also around cultures that inform how we interact with each other, where we live, how do we argue, how do we resolve conflict, how do we problem solve, and what kind of expectations mm -hmm. and aspirations come about because of our sort of respective class grooming processes, for lack of a better referent. And I think that if, when we're able to apply a lens that helps us understand varying cultural dynamics, that not only gives us an ability to sort of right-size the problems or issues that need to be solved, but then also to build bridges around how we interact with one another. So we know that class relationships are significantly important to gender dynamics, racial dynamics, and thinking about some of those systems as they're interlocked and inform one another also helps us think about how we might solve some of these issues. So when I think about how to solve some of them, I think that means bringing people from different class backgrounds together to figure out what are your needs and how, what are the varying strategies that we could use to address them? And then how do we do that in as consistent a way across a lot of different problems? large scale societal problems like what we're facing with this global pandemic, but then also how we're running organizations. Oftentimes people who are leading organizations, even if they're not born into the same class, they're usually around the sort of same class category at the level of compensation, level of education. What does that mean for how organizations are led and how people view particular problems? And if we understand that our class experiences can inform how we see and then what solutions might come to mind in that process, I think it becomes important for us to think about diversity also around dimensions of class and also around how we tackle and articulate and solve problems. Even the idea of philanthropy, which is a wonderful sort of construct to an extent, what we also have to think about with philanthropy is where did people get their resources from to be able to do quote unquote good? Yeah. And how do we think about potentially redistributing resources so that way communities have those resources and don't have to rely on the beneficence of others to get their needs met? So like, okay, when you talk about redistribution, because of course, you know, we're in the, the midst of a political year and mm -hmm. naturally some people, when they hear redistribution, they automatically think of socialism. Mm -hmm. Can you give me like, what's, what in your estimation, what, how do you define sort of this redistribution? Is it socialism? Is it something not quite socialism? Just practically speaking, what does it look like? Give me an example. Yeah, so that's such a great question. And oftentimes I think people presume, I think in the United States in particular, the ways that we tell the stories about the United States are oftentimes around the individual and the sort of self-made person without honoring the fact mm. that there's a lot that is socialist already in the United States. So yep. if we think of the roads that we use to get to and from work, 
that is a social investment. Parks, libraries, cultural institutions are also social investments because they offer an opportunity for people to gather, for people to learn in community with others and bring people from different backgrounds together. So the United States is a sort of, in reality, is not just sort of a country built by rugged individualists. It has always been a social project and endeavor. Just depends on how you want to tell the story. When you put it that way, (laughs) when you put it that way, it sounds different. So let's go, I want to talk about because I know our time is, is winding down, believe it or not. But one thing that you, you mentioned, this whole notion of building bridges, the work that you do through class action and this whole notion of one possible solution is to be um, more intentional around building bridges between classes. Can you give us an example of what that might even look like? Is it gathering people of different class status? And is it having sort of these fireside chats to figure? Or, or what does it look like? If I am, let's say, a, a, wil- a wealthy philanthropist and I hear this this podcast and I'm like, hey, I feel a responsibility to help. How can I practically help? So give me an example of, hey, I'm that individual that comes from wealth. How can I practically help? And on the other extreme, I'm not that individual of great wealth, but I have a particular need. What does it look like for me to practically come together to build that bridge and have active dialogue with someone? Yeah, great question. So I'll say, a couple things first. Connect with us at www.classism.org for further conversations. <laughs> Shameless plug. But the other part is that within the United yes. States, there's also a great deal of secrecy around different class experiences and also shame and guilt. So part of what we have to do is sometimes get comfortable about just naming our realistic experiences. So although I have a sort of middle-class lifestyle, my dad also grew up homeless for a time. That's a reality. And it's not meant to shame him as much as to sort of just acknowledge these are some of the experiences that I've had and they relate to these broader systems. And what I think is important for people to do is to figure out where are the opportunities where there is openness. If it's for someone you have a longstanding relationship with, sort of where is the conversation of the conversations you all have, when does socioeconomic status come up explicitly as opposed to just uh, implied? Like, oh, I work this job or I shop here or live here. Rather, is there an openness to have that explicit conversation? And that could be for anyone on the class spectrum. Outside of sort of the reciprocally reciprocal trusting relationships that you might have with longstanding people, looking out for opportunities where, like you said, fireside chat or community workshops or community conversations or even town halls are awesome opportunities because they're bringing people together from divergent backgrounds. And then how do we make this an explicit conversation in addition to all the other conversations that communities are having? Awesome. Shane, this has been really fun. I mean, I just, I always appreciate just the time, you taking time, carving out time, because I know you're a super busy person who, although I I must say, I don't think you ever sleep. So I don't know (laughs) that you are actually that busy because you actually use the 24 hours that you're given. And so I definitely appreciate everything that you shared. If someone's listening to the podcast, and I know you already plugged the um, nonprofit, but I would love for you to plug it again. So what would be the best way for people someone's listening to the podcast and they're interested in just reconnecting with you or learning more information about the work that you do. Sure. So we have classism.org, which is our website. And then we also have Classism Exposed, which is our Instagram and Twitter sort of social media platforms. And then people can connect with me if they want to continue the conversation on LinkedIn, just Shane Lloyd. Find me Shane Lloyd at uh, Cook Ross or 
any of the other places I've worked. <laughs> awesome. Now, and before I let you go, my last question for you, what are you reading? Because I know you, you like open up and crack, crack open the, the, the book um, continuously. And you've always got something great that you, that you're digesting. Oh, so I'm actually reading this book called Diversity Inc. by Pamela Newkirk, which has the tagline, the failed promise of a billion dollar business. And she is particularly talking about what she calls the inclusion industrial complex, which, you know, is the category of work I'm in, and diversity and inclusion consulting firms, the business of diversity and inclusion within organizations, and really essentially what she describes as the failed promise of the changes we're, we aspire to make within organizations. So that is what's keeping me up reading. <laughs> <laughs> good stuff thank you so much for sharing your time with us Shane I'm just so excited to again have you in my circle and just I honor and uplift everything that you work on because you my friend are extraordinary so thanks for your time no thank you Kelly I appreciate being here on your podcast and having the time to spend with you and thanks to Claude as well for all of the support in the background <laughs> <laughs> awesome thanks Thanks again for tuning in to the Boost Podcast. I hope what you heard today will help you to build your brand, optimize relationships, obtain more leads, secure thought leadership space, and tap into new markets. If you liked what you heard, please don't forget to share the podcast with your family and your friends. And while you're at it, don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast. For more information on me or any of the other services that we provide, feel free to head over to our website, kellytleonard.com. I look forward to catching up with you again on the next episode of the Boost Podcast. The entrepreneurial spirit is resilient and U.S. Bank is here to make sure that no matter what unknown pops up, business owners know that we have their back because problem solvers are the ones that keep us all moving forward by finding ways to close gaps, even when distances are being kept everywhere. So whatever you need to adapt and evolve your business, U.S. Bank is here to support you. U.S. Bank. We'll get there together. Equal housing lender member FDIC.